when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to Unstacked and Let's Unwind with award-winning author Heather Walter. Let's find out about her writing process and book two of the Malice duology, Miss Rule. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville Madison County Public Library. Hey, this is Heather Walter. Can you uh, introduce our listeners to Malice and Miss Rule? Yes, yes, of course. Um, so I am the author of Malice and Miss Rule. Malice and Miss Rule are a, a queer Sleeping Beauty retelling told from the point of view of the dark fairy in the original story. And so it follows Alice, who is known as the Dark Grace. And she is the only one in the realm who has her kind of like breed of power uh, where everyone else who is magically gifted the graces, they can only do nice things, good things. They can grant beauty, wisdom, all that kind of stuff. But Alice, on the other hand, um, does curses, hexes, that kind of thing. So she is feared and despised, but is also like sought out for this power that she has and exploited because of it. And as a result, carries around a lot of bitterness, a lot of anger at her situation. It's kind of always seeking a way out of it. And then the plot kind of thickens, as we say, when she meets the princess of the realm, Aurora, who really they shouldn't like each other. They should probably be enemies but they develop this friendship, which then turns into something more. So Malice and Misrule is a retelling of Sleeping Beauty and stark contrast to the earlier renditions because both are strong female leads. And the writing still has those threads from the earlier tale. And for me, I almost felt like they were Easter eggs. I was like, oh yeah, that's from the original. Now it's, but it's still subtle enough that your story is very uniquely yours. And it's a delicious story to listen to for both Malice and Misrule. I really enjoyed the audiobook version yes. as well. Phenomenal. Yes. Um, yeah, I enjoyed, you know, listening in the car and it feels almost nostalgic listening to a, a, a fairy tale, but even mm. though it is a retelling. Can you share your research into the original variations of the fairy tale and the process of redefining the characters for a contemporary audience? Yeah. And before I answer your question, a note on the audiobook, a fun story about that. Anne-Marie Gideon is the narrator. And um, I actually listened during March through June 2020 when we were all at home. I would go on these really long walks and listen to audiobooks. And I listened to The Other Windsor Girl, uh, which is a story about Princess Margaret, which and I really just love the narrator. And that was Anne-Marie Gideon. So when it was time to start thinking about the Malice audiobook, the producer got to me and was like, do you have any sound alikes? Do you have any narrators that you particularly like? And I was like, you know, I really like this one, like this Anne-Marie Gideon. And he was like, oh, I know her. I bet she'll do it. <laughs> and then she did. Um, that was kind of a cool moment for me to think about like my COVID walks and then listening to one who would eventually be narrating my own books. So that was kind of a cool thing. Uh, but she did great. Like you said, phenomenal. Uh, but while I was researching Sleeping Beauty, I, I've always really been interested in the older versions of the fairy tales, the original ones. They are so much darker than a lot of people realize, uh, especially like I'm thinking about Cinderella, where 
the mom of this of the stepdaughters is like literally having her daughters cut off pieces of their feet and like the birds are like oh look she's bleeding (laughs) she's not the right girl um and all the princes in those are so dumb like really like you didn't catch on to the fact that this girl is like having part of her foot is missing um but anyway i digress so i'm doing research into that listening or reading as many of the original fairy tales as i could get and the one thing that really stood out to me in every single one of them was that the dark fairy was the only fairy like her like that is not that is maybe the one thing that doesn't change because sometimes the fairy doesn't get invited to the party which is kind of the story that a lot of us know but sometimes she just like randomly shows up. She's just like, I'm just going to go and curse the baby because I feel like it. And sometimes the curse is for a hundred years. Sometimes it's not for a hundred years. Sometimes there's a kiss involved. Sometimes it's just like the clock runs out on a hundred years and the princess wakes up. And so it's like, you served your time. You did your punishment kind of thing. Um, but the dark fairy was the only one. And so I really started thinking about how that must have felt to be the only person like you in the world. And when I started kind of framing it in that mindset, it really spoke to me about communities and and people today who feel that way, who feel alienated, who feel lonely, who feel like they are not being invited to a party, intentionally being excluded and erased. And so from there, I kind of started to form the Alice character where she is this very angry person. She's alone. She is seeking people, but they're also exploiting her and she doesn't know who to trust. And so I felt like that rang pretty true for this fairy. But then the other thing that I wanted to address was the motivation, because that was not consistent through the original tales. And sometimes, like I said, sometimes she's invited to the party. Sometimes she just like is in a bad mood that day. And then another thing I noticed, especially with female villains and the motivation with female villains is so many of them, especially in these original tales are given very flat cis female motivations, stereotypical cis female motivations. Like they want to be the prettiest. They want to marry the man. They want to somehow have a baby. I don't know. Um, not getting invited to the party. Just everything stemming from vanity, jealousy, fake love, you know, like wanting to marry up kind of thing. And so I really didn't like that because I felt like male villains are allowed to want things. Like they're allowed to just want to rule a kingdom or be bad. Like they're allowed to reach for those things. And nobody questions that. And so I wanted to give her more of a fleshed out motivation about why she would do what she did. And I was thinking about, you know, a curse for a hundred years, like that's pretty extreme, like just kind of pretty much trying to turn this kingdom on its head was basically what she was trying to do in the stories. Why would someone react that way? And I, and, and so suddenly too, like it really does seem like a snap decision for her in the tales. Um, And so I thought really the only thing that I can think of that would kind of go with that is not so much, oh, you didn't invite me to the party, but love, like love will kind of push us to do these very extreme snap decision reactions. And so once I kind of had those big chunks of pieces, the story kind of began to form on its own. 
I love the thought of just kind of putting it into kind of modern day perspective and just seeing, you know, the villain sitting there on Twitter or something going, feeling cute, might curse a baby. (laughs) 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 That'd be awesome. Uh, So you you did a lot of reading of the past things. How long would you say you spent going back, going over all the kind of fairy tales that you went through for the the research? You know, um, 30 years, I guess. I really loved all of this from, you know, from when I was younger. And so once I decided I was going to, I was like, okay, I'm going to write this Sleeping Beauty or I'm going to start exploring a Sleeping Beauty retelling. I had a lot of research that I had done when I was younger. So I didn't spend like, I maybe spent some weeks. Um, and I am a very impatient writer. And so t- I'm having to really train myself because I feel like if I'm not getting words on the page, I'm wasting time. But if words are on the page and then you erase them later, like, <laughs> what'd you do there? <laughs> you know, like, um, so I'm having to really train myself to think like reading and research is part of the process. It is work. It is worthwhile. So a lot of times I would start writing and then I would go back to the research and then I would start writing again and I'd go back to the research. So there wasn't, I wouldn't say that there was a time when I was writing that it was like, this is my research period. It was more like I had all of these kind of stored up from things I had already read and then revisited them for a little bit, maybe just even a few weeks or something before I really started trying to outline and, and do all of that. So I heard in a previous interview that Malice was going to be a standalone at one time, which would have been an epic ending and I would have wanted more anyways. So I'm so glad that it's had a part two. There's more humor throughout Miss Rule and then in Malice. And I think part of that is just the introduction of having imps as a character. So how fun was it to add imps into Miss Rule? Oh my gosh, they were so fun. Um, and Miss Rule was really hard to write um, because at the end of Malice, uh, I guess close your ears as a spoiler if you've not read it, like everything is gone, like just like torched the entire realm. And so when my editor was like, we really are going to need, you know, a book two with this. And this was when the duology, it sold as a duology. So like I knew when it sold that there would be another book. But I wasn't sure, like the actual call with my editor where we were talking about the project. She was like, we're going to want a book two. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Whatever. Like I wrote book one. I could definitely write book two. Like, no worries. It's a problem for future Heather. She can deal with this. And so when I started to write Miss Rule, I found myself in a bit of a panic because I was like, what's left? Like nobody's left. Nothing is left. And so I'm having to build this world, you know, from the ground up. Um, and uh, for a while, I thought maybe it was just Alice alone, nobody else with her. And then when I really started to try to dig into this world, like I really wasn't connecting with that idea at all. I was like, there has to be more than three people in this book. <laughs> like, we got to have more people. And so I thought, well, what if, you know, this, the stories are going to circulate, like the people who are escaping are going to tell there's got to be more people like her. They had to have gone somewhere. And so what if they start, you know, kind of congregating and basically creating a, an evil commune in this like reclaiming this land, which then I thought that was a great idea. I just really, really loved that. Um, and so then I'm starting to think about who they are within. And then I had to go back to, so I had to go back to book one to remind myself like what evil creatures I referenced. <laughs> who, who are we dealing with here? And so I, I kind of started to think about which each one should have their own type of magic. Each one should have their own, you know, thing that they're dealing with. 
And then when I thought about the imps, I was like, oh, Sour Patch Kids. Like, that's who they are. <laughs> like, they're basically just Sour Patch Kids running around. Sometimes they're sweet, sometimes they're not. Um, they are basically impulsivity personified. And so they do exactly what comes into their head at the exact moment. And their presence was um, a little bit uh, smaller to begin with. And then when I was reading it, my editor, one thing that she said that she really, really loved was the imps. And I really, really loved the imps as well. And so I was like, you know what, we're just going to put them in. At one point I got so frustrated with the draft I was writing and I was like, we're just going to scrap the whole thing. And this is just going to be a story about the imps, like just the imps, only the imps in the story. They were just so fun. Any scene with them, when I would get to the, when I was editing, I would just smile because I was just like, oh, it's the imps. They get to say whatever they want. They get to do whatever they want. Um, yeah, just very freeing. I, I love them too. They I have my whole heart. I just want a castle full of imps to make me pastries whenever I want it. But you don't really know what else they're going to do. So I don't know if I would want <laughs> and actually want a castle full of them. <laughs> Definitely mischievous, but in all the best of ways. Yeah. <laughs> so going down that path, how much of your first draft survives that editing process? More than I would think, but a lot less than I would want. <laughs> So there are some things, there are some things in Misrule that were there in the very, very first draft. Uh, it's not quite a spoiler. Like what Derek washes up on shore, like that, that has been there. There's a line that Aurora says in there about how we shouldn't um, abandon something just because it's at its worst. My agent was one of my first readers and she was just like, I really hope this makes it. Um, and I was like, yeah, we're going to make sure it makes it. Uh, the beginning actually was one of the last things that I changed. And I typically do struggle with, with beginnings. Um, but I had it like the actual original scene was this very gory, like Reagan is coming back from battle and they have a prisoner and they like cut his throat right there in the throne room. And there's like blood everywhere. And I was trying to show like how far Alice has fallen, but we kind of kept coming back to that opening image why is she like, why is she doing this? Like, what is this actually serving? Um, and so we needed to kind of backtrack a lot to show like, what has she been doing there? I think it works much better the way it is, but the beginning, beginning is one of the last things I edited. Um, and then the ending, the ending changed a lot too. Um, it was not, I wrote the first draft of Misrule while we were all at home, uh, very much isolated and alone and that's pretty much how Miss Roll originally ended with Alice just kind of like by herself and kind of lonely and cast off again. And it's funny because at first me and my editor were like, yeah, like, this is it. This is the ending. We got it. And I think we all kind of were in that like isolated kind of COVID depressed mindset because fast forward a year, 18 months later, we're all just like, eh, this is not gonna, <laughs> this is not gonna translate very well. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm good at the big chunks that I'm sure about typically stay some lines that I love will stay, but otherwise I'm pretty flexible and fluid. I really, I think my editor loves this about me. I don't mind cutting and rewriting as long as it is, makes the story, the story, um, they're just words. So as long as like the heart of the story is intact, like I will cut, do whatever needs to be done. Just kind of getting into details. How do you go about your editing process? I mean, do you just kind of do a reread then be like, no, this doesn't work? Is it more of a just letting other people do it, kind of do a, a periphery beta test on it? 
I don't use beta readers or critique partners. And like, I, I don't know why and there's nothing against them at all. I just, I guess I've never really found them. Um, it's a very personal relationship between the two of you. And so like, I feel like it needs to be the right person. So I'm not opposed to it. I've just never used them yet. Typically I'll send something over to my agent. She'll read it. She's very, very editorial and great. And she'll give me her thoughts. Um, and then I'll revise as needed. My editing process is so much more of a rewriting process and it's such a hassle. <laughs> I wish it wasn't like that. And I've tried, I have really tried because I'm very type A. And so I'm a list person. You give me a to-do list and I can just be so happy just checking each one off. And so I wish the writing process was like that because, you know, you think, okay, here are the things that are going to happen. Just tick, 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 keep, keep going. I um, mean, that just like, isn't the case for me. So I have tried so hard to outline and, and create like a plan and a path. And I almost always spend all this time on this outline and then start writing and abruptly abandon it. Um, and so for me, uh, when I'm drafting, I just have to let myself go. And then I'll go in and I'll read what I have. And I typically try to pinpoint where I really start to find the character's voice, because once I have the character's voice and, and once I know who the character is and what they want and everything that has to do with them, the rest becomes a lot easier. Um, and for me, I am so worried about telling a story and what happens that a lot of times I'll lose the relationships between the characters. And so like right now I'm working on a project where I am, I'm in a scene and I'm trying to force myself to be like, okay, um, you have to like this, these two characters need to interact in a way, like stop focusing on like this big overarching thing that's happening in the plot and like get down to this nitty gritty with these two characters and show this relationship. Um, so yeah, my editing process is much more of a, okay, go in, let's find those little bits of voice. Uh, let's expand on that. And then typically I'll get an edit letter back from my editor she'll pinpoint problems. And then I will try to find the root of those problems because a lot of times that actual problem that she's seeing is not the actual problem that's happening in the manuscript. Like there's a, like her note is because of something that's buried far deeper. And so then I try to change that. Something always changes, things shift around it is like, I wish I could tell you that like, I mean, the last version of Misrule came together in about two months before, um, like two whole months of like, I had big chunks of it that stayed, but like it was a massive, massive rewrite in like eight weeks. So a lot of times I cry, you know, <laughs> a lot of coffee, a lot of tears. <laughs> it's like having to expect the unexpected, I guess, for as, as a fellow type A. <laughs> yes. We hate the unexpected. We We're do. Just We're like, not good with no. it. <laughs> yeah. Like, No. Dragon's teeth is almost like a curse word that you use. It's been developed for your realm and um, it's in both of the books. And I've heard of various Fae before, but I didn't really know Avila before. I don't know if that one's new or specific to yours. Um, how did you kind of develop language that was going to be used throughout in, in your books that really make it its own world? Yeah, Dragon's Teeth. Um, so it's interesting. One of the first drafts of Malice they were like, they would say like God's teeth or gods or something like that. And my agent came back to me and she was like, there are literally no gods in your book. Like there is like no religious system whatsoever. So I don't know why your characters are referencing the gods. And so I was like, ah, she's right as usual. And so I thought about 
the kind of motif of Briar is this dragon from the first Queen's time. And so I was just kind of like naturally just like, oh, dragon's teeth. I was like, yeah, we'll use that. And so um, my agent liked it. I, I liked it. Um, it's been so cool to see people like online say dragon's teeth, you know, or whatever. And I've been like, oh yeah, I like, I, I made that up. That's so fun. <laughs> um, Vila is actually Bulgarian for fairy. And when I found it, cause I was struggling with, I had the light fae and the dark fae and that's like what they were called at first, but I didn't love that. I felt like it was like too generic. We needed to get something a little bit more. So I kept the Aetherians. <laughs> which I actually took from the word ethereal, like not, you know, kind of out there, it's otherworldly. And so Ethereum is where that Etheria and Ethereum is where that came from. Um, and then when I was looking for another word for fairy, I was just, I think on a language site or something and I saw Vila and I was like, Ooh, and I, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it the way that they would in, in Bulgarian. I didn't do a pronunciation. I just like saw it and I saw Vila and I was like, it sounds like evil. It looks so cool. And so that was like immediately put that one in. Um, I, I think that might be most of my language. A lot of times I try to, I'm bad with names, Actually, really funny story about uh, the names is Cal's first name was Ren. And then we have, of course, King Tarkin. And I got those off of Ren. I think I just kind of like came to me. It was just like Ren. Yeah. And then Tarkin, I found, I think, on a fantasy name generator, which makes sense with what I'm about to tell you, because I the book sold to Del Rey, which publishes a lot of Star Wars books. I'm big into the Star Wars franchise. And they came back to me after the book sold and were just like, hey, did you name these characters after Kylo Ren and Tarkin? Because Ren definitely has like a Kylo feel to him, which I agree. But I had to then I go, I had to go back to Del Rey, like publisher of Star Wars novels and be like, I don't know who those people are. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't even know who Kylo Ren was. I had never seen Adam Driver like dressed up as Kylo. Like I must have lived in Iraq because I Googled him and I was like, oh my gosh, I've written Kylo Ren. <laughs> like, he's got like the dark, the kind of like moral grayness. Um, so we changed it because that was clearly, you know, not my intention, but all that to say, I'm bad with names. <laughs> I go on fantasy name generator. I try to figure that out. Uh, the graces though, I knew I wanted them named after like floral type stuff, you know? So that was easy. But other than that, any words that I find, sometimes I try to play around like I did with Vila with other languages. I'll look up other words, you know, synonyms or other languages, play on a Latin root, something like that. So I try to ground it a little bit because otherwise I think all of us just sit there at our keyboards, like typing in random letters to see if something comes up. <laughs> and the Vila, I, I almost thought of it as a shortening of the word villain even like, yeah, kind of has that. So it fit yeah. really well. <laughs> it did. Thanks, um, Bulgarian. <laughs> you mentioned people online using using the, the words you created. Another thing I've noticed is that you have a, a, a hefty amount of people giving you fan art of your characters. So uh, what's that been like? Oh, it's been so wonderful. You know, I was lucky enough that Delray commissioned three pieces of fan art and I was very involved in that process. And that was a dream come true. Like those artists are so talented and the fact that they brought my characters to life. Um, I just, I so appreciated that. Um, but the people like the, the people out in the world who are just like taking the time and using their skill to bring my characters to life. Like, I think it, it's like the ultimate compliment, you know, like I think all of us authors, you know, we all, we all want to be on a list. We all want, you know, we want this or that. We all want a movie deal or whatever, 
but really the fans who are connecting with these characters enough to want to make art based off something that I made, it's just mind boggling. To me, it means more than any, I think, award or, or milestone that I could achieve because it, it really does speak to the fact that those characters resonated with them and they resonated with them enough that they wanted to bring them to life in their own way. Um, and so it really, it just means that I just love, I love, love, love seeing. It. I think my ultimate, my next, my next goal, cause I mean, the fan art amazing. And I like, I screenshot every single one. I'm going to, I got to make like a blanket or something or collage in my office. Cause I just can't get over it. Um, but another, I should say, not my next, another milestone I would love to see is if anybody cosplayed Alice or any of the, the stories. I've had some people online who have cosplayed and showed me, but if I was at a con and someone came up to me cosplayed as my character, I would probably just lose my mind. <laughs> I've also seen that uh, Delray partnered up with uh, Hero Forge to actually make yeah. miniatures. Yeah, that was so cool. And they were so nice and uh, let me kind of help uh, make it and so I like I did my thing it was so cool I I don't know about you but I was a I was a sims kid in the you know early 2000s like lost a lot of hours in sims. <laughs> a lot a lot of hours so making the four making the little mini was very much like being in that create mode where like your sim has to have the exact right hair and clothes and you have to pick the clothes for the occasion like oh man I love sims um but <laughs> so I, I spent a lot of hours trying to make the perfect Alice and Aurora. And then of course they came back and we're just like, how about we do some tweaks here and there? And they made it like a thousand times better. I was like, where were you? I was making my Sims. Um, but yeah, watching them having that happen. I have one at home that my little mini and it's just so cute. And it's so cool. Like to think about people playing D and D with Alice and Aurora, like definitely not something that I would have thought would have happened. Are you a gamer yourself? So yes and no. We have a switch and I like, um, I'm actually replaying resident evil four, which is old. I'm like an old, I'm like an old gamer guys. Um, <laughs> so I do, I really, really like video games. Some of my favorites in college were like, I loved the God of war series. I loved Skyrim, of course, like just lose days and days in Skyrim, uh, fable a little bit Sims, obviously any of those ones where I could like escape into the world and kind of like create my own world. Dungeons and Dragons was not super popular when I was growing up. And so I don't have any really D&D friends right now, but I'm definitely like interested. It seems like really fun. Um, but unfortunately, and this is kind of like one of those things where I have my full-time job and then I have my writing and everything that's not there is kind of like decompression time. Like, I feel like I don't have enough hours in the day. Like all of my time just gets eaten so the gaming has really super duper slowed down. I feel like sometimes I'm lucky just to read like 10 pages in a day and I used to just like devour books. So it's a little bit difficult finding that balance, but for sure gaming. And I really think if anyone out there is trying to write or yeah, if anyone out there is writing, I think consuming narratives is something that really helps me as a writer. And I know all, all of us out there say, read, 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 read. Um, but I'm really of the opinion that it's not so much the books. I mean, it is like absolutely read books, see how they kind of like style and, and create their prose and create their characters. Very, very helpful. But just narratives in general, uh, like video games can be so helpful. TV shows, movies, watching how these creators put narratives in these different forms. I think any of that is really helps me as a writer. 
And at the heart of this, it's a love story. It's a sapphic love story between Aurora and Alice slash Namara. So could you tell us a little bit about their, their not so typical happily ever after, but it's still a perfectly done love story. I think I felt the ending was perfect. It was very satisfying. So um, could you tell a little bit about having their love story in, in your, your narrative? Yeah. Do we want to do, do you want me to do spoilers or, or no spoilers? Totally up to you, but I guess just announce if it's a spoiler. <laughs> okay. Okay. So yeah, so I can talk a little bit about it without spoiler, then I may announce the spoiler. Um, But for Alice and Aurora, uh, what I really wanted, what's interesting with Alice is that Aurora is the first person to ever really care for her, like kind of at all. She has, she has some people in her life, like Hildy, uh, Laurel, like not, it's not that everyone is terrible to her, but Aurora is like this first person to have a connection with. And so in that way, sometimes the book almost crosses even into the YA field a little bit because that first love that a lot of us feel is just so strong and consuming. And that is where Alice is. And then Aurora, on the other hand, I think has always been uh, treated as this princess who should like princessy type things and it's not really important what she does or who she is because she is eventually going to be Briar Queen, but really her husband will be. So she's almost head of the realm, but like nobody really cares about her at the same time. And so I feel like Alice is probably the first person to look at her in a different light. So I think what we have is two people finding each other, seeing each other for the heart of who they are and coming together that way. And I think that is really what if true love exists, like that is what true love is, is not so much an insta love or an attraction, but just seeing someone for who they are and accepting them where they are. And I think malice particularly has spoken to the LGBT community. I felt very supported by that community and very embraced by them because I feel that a lot of us do feel sometimes that we're not seen and that we're not accepted for who we are and how we are. And Aurora absolutely does that with Alice. Like she loves her flaws. She loves her dark magic. Like she's there for the long haul in book two. um, And this is the spoiler part. So if you're listening, you don't want spoilers, just like fast forward, whatever. In book two, it's an interesting dynamic because Alice has made this huge decision to (laughs) burn everything down and basically kill all of everybody Aurora knows, including her family. And then it's just kind of expecting Aurora to wake up and go, oh, cool. (laughs) Look at all these new people in my house. And of course, Aurora doesn't. And so it was challenging for me because the happily ever after crowd was very loud at the end of Malice, like very, very overwhelmingly loud. Like I want these two to be together. And I would look, sit back and go, but look at what Alice did. Like, do you really, is it really realistic for Aurora to wake up? And, you know, it's just this moment of them coming together and being like, oh yeah, this is great. Let's start this new life together. Like for me, it just wasn't realistic. So there had to be a fair amount of tension with Aurora coming back into the scene, seeing what Alice did, learning that Alice just kind of like let her sleep for a hundred years, no biggie. Um, And so a a lot of, and it's really all of this is Alice's flaws, like continuing to plague her through this second book. And so with the ending of Misrule, I knew that they still loved each other no matter what. And I think that that is probably true in our own lives. Like that, that love like stays with us no matter what. Sometimes we don't even want to love the people that we love, but we can't help it. And so I feel like that's kind of where they were. 
But I also knew that Alice was in Briar her whole life. That's all she knew. She was the dark grace. And then she was mistress of the dark court. Um, and she did all of this stuff and there was betrayal. She was betrayed. She did betraying. She needed to figure out who she was because I still feel like towards the end of Misrule, even though they kind of have this like big epic battle and they seem to come to terms together. But at the end, Alice still is, is not sure like who she is and what she wants to be. And sometimes I feel like we do have to leave the person that we're with and spend time alone to figure out who we are. And so when Al Alice leaves at the end of the book, and I felt like, like you said, for me, it, it really rang true. She wasn't kicked out. She wasn't cast off in disgrace. They didn't break up. I mean, kind of they did, but whatever. But she chooses herself over anybody else. She chooses herself and to get to know herself. And I am a firm believer that you can't really be in a relationship with someone unless you are true to yourself and you know yourself and you love yourself, because then you have, if you're not, you don't have anything to give to the other person. And so I decided to have Alice choose to leave. She goes, she does something that she's always wanted to do. She helps people get, she helps creatures like her get out of, of bad situations and then come back to a, the safe place that is Briar. Um, and then after she spends all this time, and I know it's like at the end of the book, it's like a hundred years later, but you have to kind of think about with people like Alice and Aurora, like a hundred years to them is not a hundred years to us. Like the time is, is, is different. I would say, you know, five, 10 years maybe for her, like she's gone a long time for sure, but she's doing something she loves. And then when it's time to go back, she gets there on her own terms. She's not summoned back. She doesn't have to go back. Alice is finally choosing things for Alice, which is not something that she has really done for like the whole two books. It was interesting for the time lengths to think of like a mortal versus someone who's a little bit more immortal. I couldn't imagine trying to place a hundred years sounds perfect for most of that. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. years. <laughs> it was also just like, eh, it's a fairy tale, hundred years. <laughs> it works. <laughs> I am a, a big fan of villains in general, and I, I like to kind of explore the the, the nature of evil and, and villainy. And I, I, there's a book I read a while back called I Wear the Black Cat by uh, Chuck Klosterman. And uh, one of the, the descriptions he says is the villain is the person who cares the most, uh, who knows the most, but cares the least. And it, it's kind of like made me think about how I look at villains per se. So as someone who has now written villains, uh, what would you say makes a good villain? Oh man, a good, well, one good thing a villain does is they always do and say what everybody else is too afraid to do or say. <laughs> like we have these, and it depends too, because I think not all villains are sociopaths, but all sociopaths are villains kind of thing. So it depends on where you want to go with it, because I, I don't think I write sociopaths um, and some people can, and they do it very well, but I find a sociopath very difficult to connect to. And so I, I hope I always write villains in some way, shape or form, but I do think a villain is almost a, a good villain. What makes the best villain is one that we can relate to and one that we can, I mean, a lot of times villains, we love to hate them. You know, uh, I was on a panel in Phoenix and they were like, yeah, Dolores Umbridge. And everybody was like, oh, I hate her. So like, I feel like that, that can be a really great villain too. But sometimes it's the villain that we can relate to the most. We understand where they're coming from. Like, I think um, I'm watching the end of Ozarks right now. And I think everybody on that show is wonderful. And the, the bird family, especially with the mom and dad, um, they are 
they're relatable. Uh, they're relatable if you watch them from the beginning, kind of turning into who they are. Or Walter White from uh, Breaking Bad, kind of watching him go from this nobody to this like basically super villain by the end of the series. But we're like there with them. They're rooting for them. Um, and so with Alice, I definitely kind of, and it was tough too, because like, I didn't want to make her seem like, oh, like, let's all feel so sorry for her. And um, this is why she did it. And we just have to pity her. Like they have to be flawed. Like they do have to be flawed. They have to be making their own decisions. They can't just be lashing out in self-defense all the time. Like they do have to actively decide to choose this path that is considered wrong but you have to do it in a way that the reader wants to go with them. Like, yeah, let's do it. And for me, like, I don't know if I did it for every reader, but the fact that so many people at the end of the series, at the end of book one, were just like, yeah, burn it down. Like you got this, like Aurora should be happy. I was like, I think I, I did something right there. <laughs> Usually with the way things go in a narrative place is your heroes, your protagonists tend to be more reactionary than, than actionary people. It's usually the heroes that are the, uh, the villains that are pushing the stories along. Um, would you say that, you know, when you, when you take it from a villain's perspective, do you try to keep it in that fashion or do you, do, do they become by their nature more reactionary in that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and there's always a, like a, a mustachey twisted villain in every story, right? Like, I guess if like you don't want to see Alice as the villain in Malice, maybe the king would be, Tarkin would be, or even just like the Briarian society as a whole. So I do, I do think that Alice in a lot of ways is reactionary because like she's responding to the way she's treated. She's responding to something that she wants. Um, she's definitely not kind of sitting back and plotting. So I guess it really just kind of depends on what villain you're going to have and, and what they're going to do. But yeah, I know that's a really, that's a really interesting question. And I think, but I think for Alice, she did kind of become more of a kind of traditional hero reactionary character because she does, she does kind of push back, but sometimes she doesn't because when Tarkin comes to her and is like, um, I want you to start poisoning things for me and I'll give you the money that you need to, you know, however, whatever you want to do with it, I'll just give you a bunch of money. Uh, I think a traditional hero would not have said yes to that. I think Alice is reactionary in a lot of ways and a lot of villains can be reactionary where they're in the main thing. Um, but I think their moral line, their moral code is a lot blurrier uh, because a lot of times we have these heroes in the story that they're always going to make the right choice. Like they're always going to kind of push toward that end game of good winning. But when you have a villain, you're a lot more free to let that villain decide for themselves, well, what works best for me? And what am I, what do I want? And a lot of times I'm bored by heroes um, because they're always like, well, what's best for everyone else? I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> Cares about everybody else. <laughs> So I heard that Dunlace Castle in Northern Ireland was an inspiration for the Dark Tower. So how was that the location that you were inspired by? Or did you travel there or did you just stumble across it? Or tell us more about that. <laughs> yeah, um, if you're ever in Northern Ireland, I highly recommend it. So we, it was a kind of an accident that I even saw it. We had, it was 18, I think, 2018. And we were doing a, a kind of UK 
Europe trip. We did almost a week in Northern Ireland and then a week in London and a week in, in Paris. And mm -hmm. in Northern Ireland, we, we got there and I think it was like the trip, part of the trip that I planned the least because we were in Belfast mm -hmm. and uh, the Airbnb that we were at happened to have these pamphlets of things to do while you're here. And I saw, I saw a Game of Thrones tour, which I really wanted to do, but the person I was with is not into Game of Thrones. And so she was like <laughs> negative, like mixing that. I was like, but it's gotta be beautiful. Um, and so there was also a brochure about just a general like Giants Causeway. Um, I think Caradoc Castle. I, I know I said that wrong. Just a few other sites. So it was kind of like a compromise between the two. And so we were on the bus back from Giants Causeway, which is a really cool place out there by the coast. And it has like these like I think they're lava rocks or something that have like risen to the front or risen to the surface. Gorgeous scenery, like a backdrop. We were on the way back and we had like five minutes. The guy stopped the bus and he was like, I just want to show you guys this castle. It's like so cool. It's called Dunluce. And so I looked out at it and it, it was just fascinating to me. The castle is right on the edge of the cliff, but it didn't always used to be that way. Like they had built the castle and it was like a full on fortress basically. Um, but they built it too close to the cliffside. And as the years and the centuries kind of wore on, uh, the cliff kept deteriorating and the storms would like, blow some of the castle off and so this castle is just like literally just crumbling into the sea and like all that's left of it is uh like i think an outline of it you've even got grass growing up in there you can't even you can go to the ruins but like there's no like second floor anymore like basically it's all gone but it just like put in my head this like castle that is like literally just crumbling away into the sea going and so when i'm writing i didn't i hadn't started writing malice yet but when i did start writing malice when I knew that Ren, or sorry, <laughs> he's still, he'll, he'll always be Ren to me. Um, <laughs> when I knew that Cal was living out, uh, living out there, I was just like, oh, it's done loose. It's perfect. And what a perfect prison. Like you can't ever leave this place. Oh, and it's slowly crumbling into the sea. Oh, and when there's no roof, you'll die. Um, <laughs> so I just thought it was this perfect place for him. I wish I had traveled. I had spent a semester in, in Belfast and I didn't go to oh. these cool places. So I was very jealous. I'll have to go back. <laughs> yes. I loved Belfast so much. And, you know, everyone was so nice and they were all really confused about why we were like tourists there. They were uh -huh. like, you want to come a lot here? Of tourists, yeah. I, was like, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went, <laughs> I said Belfast though. Like I told, uh, we had to go there because I, was a huge Titanic nerd as a teenager mm -hmm. and I still kind of am. And so the ship was basically built there in Belfast, mm -hmm. like, as you know, and now they have this uh, really cool Titanic museum there and they've actually turned the architecture offices where they planned the ships and all the white star ships. They've turned that into a Titanic hotel now, which is, I know it's super cool. We went in there. I was like, why don't we stay here? And you can actually like go and see like where the ship was sitting, like where they built it. The Titanic Museum is so cool. So it was just kind of a happy accident that we were in there. But Belfast is awesome. That's so cool. You got to spend a semester there. That, that museum, I understand, is the exact same size as the Titanic as well. And can fit yeah. the, yeah. Yep. So being a, a world traveler, how's that, a, you know, the past year or so affected uh, your ability to kind of write? Oh, man, it's been, it's been interesting. You would think, like you would think, okay. We're at home. There's like nothing else to do. This is going to be the most productive you have ever been in your life. False. like <laughs> Absolutely false. Um, a lot of like March of 20 and then kind of going into the summer being at home was okay with me. Like I was all right with it, but mostly it was a lot of like 
anxiety over like what was happening. And then we had this, another big Europe trip planned for that summer. And so we spent weeks and weeks going, well, maybe, maybe, maybe. And then just like the heartbreak of like, no, like you have to cancel it all. You can't go. Um, and so that, that was tough, but then just like the mindset, like I, I learned a lot about how anxiety and stress and isolation really does affect the creative process. Um, like I said, I wrote the first draft of misrule. If, you know, malice, I, uh, hammered that out in like nine months from first draft to sale. And so I'm, I'm over there just like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll write this. It'll be great. And it was like a round and another round and another round of like full rewrites. I had never spent that long writing a book like in my life. And it was just because like, I couldn't find, like, I couldn't connect to it. I couldn't find the characters again. Um, and I do think that was a lot of the external pressure of the world and just like the general feeling that everything is on fire and like, what are we going to do now? And so I still, like, I still find it a struggle just because it seems like every day there's something else terrible, you know, that happens. And I was never that much of a doom scroller, but like my doom scrolling, like absolutely skyrocketed from March of 20, even until now I'll catch myself and be like, this is not helpful. Like this is not serving you. Um, because once your brain kind of gets in that cycle, like that's all you can think about. And it used to be that my brain would just think about my books <laughs> and I would just like, right. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's really been, it's been, um, a struggle for sure. And, um, I'm just hoping to like find, finding new ways to channel the creativity and allowing that creativity to kind of come back and, and to, to bloom because like waiting on things to get better. I don't think it's the viable, it's the viable answer. I think you just have to learn how to adapt to the new situation. <laughs> Before I found my way back to uh, to library work, I was a real life villain in the sense that I was a homeowner association manager. Oh so, yeah, you were. <laughs> and, and that was, you know, I had I had broke out of the habit of there of trying to be a doom scroller just because you know you'd have certain properties that would pop up in the news or stuff, and I'd have to I just vacated everything I could that would keep you know separate life from work kind of stuff. Yeah. And unfortunately, yeah, these last couple of years has definitely brought back that habit. I've been trying to fix yeah. it again. Yes. So speaking of libraries, you have dragon hide covered books. Your the books inside of the books have like secrets, and they're written from different perspectives. I can tell you have a love of libraries and books in both titles, and part of it is because you are a librarian, correct? Yes. yes. And is there a real library that is either a favorite of yours or that you hope to visit one day that kind of contains that natural library magic, uh, rare books or anything like that? Oh yeah, for sure. I'm trying to think of where, where I've been. I did go in February. I went to the Morgan library in New York. Yeah, it is so cool. It is like the closest to the beauty and the beast library that I've ever been. And if you've not heard of it, the Morgan library is the former home of the banking magnet JP Morgan, who was a real person. And now it's the bank. Um, and he like, I think he donated his house for research or, or something, but the library in the house, it's two floors. It has kind of the gallery walkway above there. It is just like, it's incredible. It's breathtaking. And you can actually go and you can see like what titles he has a lot of first editions. There's a vault with rare books. Um, so basically every book lover's like dream. And the fact that someone used to live in this house is like so insane to me. So that was a great place. I went to the New York Public Library while I was there as well, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and that one lived up to all of my dreams. I was not scholarly enough to be permitted into the Rose Room. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> they don't, but I, as a librarian, I understand because they really don't want tourists just like trekking through there and disturbing the patrons who are actually trying to work. And so I completely respect that. Next time I go, I'm going to actually like bring my computer and, and just like go and work there. Um, but otherwise, like the marble and staircases and the really cool stained glass windows, like that New York library is absolute, like it's just exactly what you would hope and expect for it to be. Um, so yeah, I, I love libraries. I love the, the quiet, um, even though as a, I know that you guys understand too, libraries are not always quiet. So like this whole stereotype of us being shushers and, and stop doing that, it's completely not true anymore. But sometimes, you know, we do need the space to be a kind of a safe haven for people to come. Um, but I think that's what it is. I've always felt really welcome in libraries, have always felt like it was a place, even if the librarians were mean, <laughs> which is sometimes they're out there. Um, but I, the space itself, I never felt like like I didn't belong and finding books and being surrounded by books. Um, I just always have loved that. I think there's one, I can't remember exactly where it is, but I know I've seen it on TikTok. There's one really supposed to be magical Beauty and the Beast type library, maybe in Switzerland or something. I wish I could remember the name, but anywhere we travel, I'm like, we have to find the library. Like we have to go and find the library. That's kind of my modus operandi of travel as well as I go and then I see if I can somehow swindle a card out of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just moved here. <laughs> you know, I've, I've gotten to the habit of sending postcards to the uh, to the, the the addresses I might be staying at. So it's like, yes, oh, look at uh, that. This is my mail. <laughs> <laughs> it's a piece of mail. <laughs> yep. One of the things we like to do here is we play a little bit of a game where I'm going to give you two random sounding titles that you're going to choose from. And inside that, we let you do, uh, we keep it PG here. You might know it as a different name, but we call it Mary Kiss Ditch. Nice. Uh, so I, I'm going to give you two different uh, kind of choices to choose from. And inside that, you'll pick which one you want to you like, you love, and you'll get rid of. Uh, so the, the choices you have to make are either infamous spellers or monstrous pages. There's not three though? It's, no, so it's... no, no, no. These, those are the two categories to choose from. Oh, okay, okay. I was like, wait, which one do I do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so which one of those two categories would you like? Infamous spellers or monstrous pages? Monstrous pages. So we're going to talk about books about the Titanic for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> so we got three books here. Ship of Dreams, A Night to Remember, and Shadow of the Titanic. Which one of those are you going to like, love, and ditch? Uh, ditch Night to Remember, which I know is like controversial because oh. it's like Sir Walter Scott and like, was it Sir Walter Scott? It's I, like I a survivor's like account of it. but It is. It is supposed to be I one of know, the man. most accurate books. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think uh, for me, it's um, it's just the it was written so long ago. It was so hard to connect to, even though he was the survivor. Like I just I never found myself in it. You know what I mean? I was like, dude, you were there and I can't get myself into this book. Um, so I would love to see somebody like redo that, like for a modern audience or something like that or a YA version. of I don't know something. But OK. And so then um, Ship of Dreams and Shadow of the Titanic. Shadow of the Titanic, and it's like in love. Like in love. Okay, I know Shadow of the Titanic was good. I think I read that one, so I'm gonna say love that one. And then Ship of Dreams, I don't know very well, so I'm gonna have to say like, I guess I should have ditched that one. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> 
Christmas spellers would have had you choosing magical villains, uh, books of that nature. So we had the Witches, Chronicles of Narnia, and Wizard of Oz. You would have had to choose which one to like, love, and, and ditch out of those three. I do know all of those. Um, let's see. But So it's Wizard of Oz. Chronicles of Narnia and the Chronicles Witches. And the Witches. Okay. Oh, this one's hard. Like Chronicles of Narnia. I do like it, but I don't love it. Probably ditch the witches which i know is like funny for me because like they're all like really mean <laughs> uh, it's just such a creative story uh, but for me love wizard of oz I, I aside from being a titanic nerd i was a complete wizard of oz 1939 movie nerd like i used to know like every little thing about the movie but the book too the book too is like really great just that kind of like transportive immersive uh, the fact that like imagining myself as Dorothy being swept away to another place like really resonated with me so I just love that one I've got a theory that you know Glinda and that is the true villain just making right? a power play yeah absolutely I also think that the real villain in the Harry Potter books is Dumbledore like what the what was he doing like he just like hands this child off and then all the, like never like Harry's like I'm gonna do this and Dumbledore's like oh, okay Hope you hope you live through it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the story of the school there. Hey, you know, good luck. You might live, you might die. Good luck. I personally love a great retelling. And the ones I'm drawn to or most are either fairy tales or gothic horror. Um, I've been doing a lot of gothic horror lately because I love the crazy lady in an attic and the whole building burning down. So Malice and its role, I've added to my top of um, favorite fairy tale retellings since it's so unique and original. And what are your personal favorite retellings? And it can be any retellings genre. Oh man, this one is so tough. I've like devoured them. Okay, this one is a little less known, I think. Um, but if anyone has read the War of Hearts series, Queen of Hearts, Queen of Hearts by Colleen Oakes. I loved that one. I thought she did a wonderful job kind of telling that story. The world is so unique. Just loved it. Um, I also, one of my first, it was actually like a, kind of a fun story because I was just at Phoenix Comic-Con and Marissa Meyer was there. And um, I was so like, I saw her and like, I saw people who were talking to her and I was like, man, she's here in the green room. I bet she just wants to just like chill out and like have her coffee before her next panel. But of course, I was just like, hi. <laughs> and I tried to shake her hand. And she's like, I'm so sorry, my brother. And she's like, so sweet. She's like, no, no, no. It's nice to meet you, whatever. And then anytime I saw her, I would try to say hi to her, but I would always say, hi, Marissa Meyer. Like, <laughs> I, I had no coolness there, um, but <laughs> I loved her Cinder series so much. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the first uh, retellings that I read as an adult, because I really, and I feel like this happens to a lot of us. I stopped reading for a long time. College kind of killed it for me with all of my textbook and, you know, required reading and whatever. And then I didn't really get into, I was right at the cusp of the YA golden age. So I didn't quite have all of the wonderful things that are available now. Um, and then I went to college and stopped reading. And then I really didn't get back into reading, especially not YA until grad school when I was doing my library work. And I was like, hey, there was like, you actually have to read like all of, I had one YA fiction class where I had to read, mm, I think like 60 titles in a semester. So, I mean, it was just like mass consumption, but that class got me reading again, got me saying like, oh yeah, I could write, I could write. 
And so the Cinder series was one of the very first retellings that I, I, more modern kind of retellings that I read. And I just thought it was so creative the way that she did everything. And it was just wonderfully done. I never, ever in my life would have put Cinderella and cyborgs together. And she just, she just did it so well. I also love uh, Bird and the Blade was really great, which I think is a retelling of like a, a myth or uh, a, it might be Persian, but I'm not sure. I don't want to say it is and then it's not. Oh, Shadow in the Glass is recent and that one's really good. That one's a Cinderella like in the 19th century kind of thing with a Faustian bargain. J.J. A. Harwood wrote that one. So that one's that one's really great. Um, but yeah, there's so many, I, it's hard for me to meet a retelling that I just absolutely do not like. So I'm sure you feel the same. Mm-hmm. I do. Jumping back to, obviously you have a, a love of reading. What got your, what sparked your interest in writing? I wrote my first book. Um, and you can't, you can't see me probably. So I'm doing air quotes. I wrote my first book um, in high school and it was really more of a novella. It was so short, but I always, I just, I've loved stories. I've, I've wanted to like eat stories like my whole life. And so I, I wrote stories in high school and then I kind of branched out and tried to do this novel. It was a historical fiction, not great. I don't even know if I have a copy of it anymore. I thought, and I really thought I was like, this is the book that's going to get published. And of course, 16, 17 year old Heather was very wrong about that. Um, but after it didn't being a very type A person, I counted that as very much a failure. I was like, oh, well, I didn't make it on my first book, so I'm never going to make it. So I'm just never going to do this ever again. Um, which is very common in people who are kind of overachievers type A. If we can't do something right the first time, we will never, ever attempt it again, because clearly it is not for us. And so I went on to undergrad and for a while, wasn't really sure what I was going to do with my English degree, which I think most people with an English degree kind of think. Uh, worked, you know, here and there and then decided I I went into teaching. I was a classroom teacher for three years and just, I really just did not love the classroom. And so I got out and then went to library school. My first thought was public libraries. Um, But then with my teaching background, it kind of made a little more sense to go back into schools because I would still be interacting with the, the students, the patrons, but I had the teaching background and so whatever. But during that grad school was, like I said, when I was reading again, it kind of circled back to, you know, you could really do this. Like you could write a book and it didn't really, I didn't really start taking it seriously. I would kind of like think back to it just like now and then like, well, how would I even come up with a whole plot? Like, how would I even like write that many words, that many pages? Cause I knew, you know, 10 years, whatever later that my little novella in high school, is not, you know, not, not going to cut it. Like it's gotta be longer. It's gotta be more developed. But then it was maybe my second year of my library job where I was just kind of like, I need more. Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write a book. And so I sat down and I did it. I cranked one out. Maybe it was like six months. Terrible, terrible, like knockoff of Divergent, which I uh, wrote for the market, which is the worst thing you can do as a writer, especially since Divergent was, it was oversaturated with books like Divergent. So like, it was never going to sell anyway learned what a query was, tried to start querying. Nobody even wanted to read past pages, like definitely not surprising. And so I kind of took a step back, but I had written the book. I had written a book. And so I had proved to myself that I could write the book. So instead of going, oh, well, nobody even wants to read this. I'm just never going to attempt this again. I told myself, 
you can do it. You have the stamina to write a novel. It just has to be the right novel. And so then I started asking the right questions, which were, what do you want to write about? What are you going to love enough to read 500 times as you edit and revise it? And what are you going to keep pushing through when you get 60 rejections, you know, however many. So once I kind of put my mind in the right frame, then I started kind of going in the right path. And um, you have a 2024 release coming up of Crimson Crown, correct? Yes, that's right. And you wrote some of it in a coffee shop. So brag on the coffee shop. Why is it a great spot to write? And what is your favorite drink? Uh, So coffee shops for me, I like being outside of my house. Usually I'm a cappuccino girl. For a while I was a latte person. And, um, I've gotten to where, I guess maybe it's too much milk for me now. So like cappuccino has kind of a little bit stronger Mm -hmm. hit, less milk. So I like that. Or even just plain, as long as I can like, you know, water, not water, like put cream in it, you know, got to have the cream, no sugar though. Um, and I like sitting there just kind of like the energy. It's funny. I, I think you saw the, the the TikTok that I did where I was like sitting in the coffee shop. Yeah. So I was in this, that coffee shop. If you're in Austin, it's Epoch and it's great coffee. You should all go there. Um, but years ago I was writing that book. It was the, actually the book that got me my agent, but it didn't sell the first time around. And so I was sitting there and this, this guy, that's the only bad thing about a coffee shop is like, sometimes people will try to talk to you. And so like this guy was like close to me and he like looked over, he's like, Oh, are you writing? You look like you're writing like a book. And I'm just like, uh. <laughs> I was like, yes, I'm writing a book. Go away. <laughs> now I have to write my book. Um, but I just remember this conversation and like telling him about this book. And I, at that point I didn't have my agent. I didn't have anything. And so I was, I was in that TikTok video sitting in the exact same spot working on the manuscript. It's, it looked completely different, but I had my agent and it didn't sell the first time around when we tried to sell it to editors, but it sold this time. And so it was, it was a, it was a nice full circle moment. You know, um, I like coffee shops. They, they get me out of the house. It's just a different vibe, different energy. I find a little, a little more productive when I don't have my kitchen to walk into and, you know, just like grab handfuls of snacks and distract myself with chores that need to be done or whatever. But it's, it's nice. I'll put on my, I put on my headphones now and pretend I don't hear people when they try to talk to me. <laughs> Getting toward these random questions here. So yeah. strangest thing in the search history. Oh my gosh. I'm so scared of searching for things sometimes. Like I am like, I get so worried about it. I was like, I am going to get on a list. Um, <laughs> oh, what was that? What was I looking up yesterday? Oh, I, I was looking up like what carrion crow eggs look like for this new crimson crown. And so I, I needed the exact how the shell is. Um, I have definitely looked things up though, that I should know, like, like parts of a horse. Cause like in, <laughs> in Miss Roll, there's a horse and I'm like, what the flank, like where I don't, what is the things called? But I have definitely looked parts up. Oh, and then uh, fun things though. Like, oh, but yeah, again, the list thing. I'm just like, I'm always trying to search for like cool weaponry, especially like for the say and misrule. And so I'm just like, well, uh, like parts of like bows and arrows and things like that, you know, like trying to find this cool stuff. So my Pinterest searches are are great. But yeah, I, I think that the parts of a horse is probably pretty funny or like other, other words. Well, I can't think of a word. 
and then I try to go and search for it. It's like the most obvious word ever. I was going to say kind of makes you wonder how it would be writing before the internet. Like how did they, you know, when they get stuck, do they, I guess they would have to go through a lot of library books. (laughs) Yeah. Libraries. There you go. (laughs) One of the things I saw that you you, you do that I hadn't seen before, but I love the concept of is book birthdays and and celebrating, celebrating those. And so what goes into a, a book birthday celebration? This last one for Misrule was great because for Malice, it was April of 21. And actually we had this, like, we were in this horrible, oh, the apartment itself was fine, but we had this like neighbor who moved in next to us who just did not care. And like, we were always hearing him like constantly, like his music through the wall. I mean, it was just, it was terrible. And so I was like, I can't do the launch here in the house because it's just like, we had become like this very stressful environment. And so I actually went rented a hotel room like for the launch, but it was also like kind of made it special, but it was just me and Lindsay. And so it was just the two of us. And so it was really special, but it also felt a little isolating because it's like logged on then log off. And it's like, Oh, now what? So for this one, I really wanted something like cool because we were able to have people over, like we bought a house and so we could have people over to the house. Um, I will not have biological children and like putting that out there publicly. So my mom can stop like dropping hints, like we'll not be having biological children. And so I don't really do like kid birthday parties, but it really is interesting. Like how much a book feels like the way I imagine a biological child feels like, um, except you do let go of it in a way that you do not let go of a biological child, right? You eventually do stop working on it. So uh, the comparison ends. But as you're working on this book, you know, like you're constantly thinking about it, you pour all this energy into it, you cry over it, you argue with it, like there's all this range of emotion that goes with it. And so when it's finally publication day and you're finished and like it exists and there's nothing more to do with it except just kind of like watch it fly um, or not fly, (laughs) the, the party kind of. Uh, I, I just love it. You get together with your friends, celebrate the process, celebrate the fact that here is this thing that I made and exists in the world. You could argue that it comes out of you. Um, and so for this one, I wanted to really just make it just very special with like decorations. The book cake, I think is something I will do like no matter what, because it's just great. And I, uh, we shared it this year. Um, but I, the rest of it, I cut up and I put in the freezer. And so like every milestone that I have, like author milestone, like I get out a little piece of my book cake and I have <laughs> a piece of my book cake and the goal is to finish it by the year anniversary of the publication date. So I guess these cool little author rituals that I've created for myself. It sounds delightful. And I always liked the, well, going back to the imps and the cake and book birthdays, it kind of all combines with the pastries and yeah. <laughs> yes. I was like, do I want a cake or do I want like all of these like briery and pastries? Cause like, mm-hmm. I just had so much fun with the food in that book. But if you are in Austin the, the uh, and you happen to see the pictures of my cake or whatever, that was Quack's Bakery. Um, mm-hmm. And they just did a stunning job with the Roll cake. It, it just looked, had the thorns and the roses and the cake on top. Um, perfect. Mm-hmm. And if could not have done a better job. <laughs> <laughs> My next question is just to hear what you're currently reading or watching. I am, well, I'm, I'm watching Ozarks, finishing up Ozarks, and that's great. I also found this series on Netflix, The Marked Heart 
So like a, it's mm. almost, it's, it's got like telenovela -y vibes, but I don't think it's quite in that category. It is dubbed. I, I don't know what country it came out, um, but it's about like this woman who gets a heart transplant, but like in order to get the heart, like she's been murdered or like the other lady was murdered and her heart was stolen because it was like bought. And then she actually winds up striking up a, a relationship with like the husband of the woman who was murdered for the heart, but she has the wife's heart anyway. So like, it's definitely a break from what I typically write. And like, I'm really loving like the narrative structure and like watching how they build the tension and stuff like that. So sometimes that's super, super duper fun. Uh, but I can't want, wait to watch Stranger Things, which just dropped, which I've not watched yet. So I'm I've really started excited. it. And there's some episodes where I'm like super good. And then some of it's a hit or miss on the episodes. But I would say definitely, definitely press play. The first one takes so long to learn the characters again. Okay. Like, who are you? It's been so long. Where are we? Yeah. yeah. So the first episode will catch you up and then you'll, it'll hook you again. And then okay. I'll be like, all right. And then know. episode four, I just watched and that one was amazing. Okay. Well, that's good. Good to yeah. know. So it um, may just be worth it just for episode four. Okay. <laughs> stop, <laughs> stop at episode four. <laughs> I'm still working on the rest. Yeah. Longer this year. They're like movie length, aren't they? Oh yeah. There's some episodes that the, I think that they're still releasing them a little bit and then some are going to be like an hour and a half in length. Yeah. And is this it? Did they say this is the end? I think I heard there was one more season. Okay. So I, thought, I thought this was it. Yeah. It is worth it. Yes. Uh, that's good to know. Uh, reading wise, I'm reading Final Strife by Sarah El Arifi. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have an arc of that. And it is fantastic. Like, I cannot believe it is her debut. I'm so jealous of her. Like, her writing chops are just, like, amazing. The world that she built, the characters, the magic system. I, I truly can't wait to see what she does next because if this is debut, like it, we are only going up from there. So that one's, that one's really great. Um, and then I feel very lucky to have an arc of Oleander Sword by Tasha Suri. Jasmine Throne is one of my top reads of 21, I think when it came out. Um, but she amazing. And I have been on reading her, watching her since Empire Sand. And she's another one where I felt like Empire was so strong, but Jasmine Throne was just like blows us out of the water. So I truly cannot wait to see where she goes with the Lander Sword. Excellent. Just to do something so we don't get yelled at later. Uh, going back and fact checking real quick. Uh, William Lord was a knight to remember, and I am incorrect. Stranger Things will have a fifth season. I was right. Oh, okay. <laughs> William so. Lord. Why do I think Sir Walter Scott? I wonder who who is that guy? I'm gonna have to look that up. <laughs> <laughs> Add to the weird um, Google stories. <laughs> I'm gonna do some rapid fires. I'm gonna get get put a like a minute on the clock here. Okay. So I'm gonna hit a bunch of different random seeming questions and we will see where we go with this. So to start, favorite mythical creature. A a grackle. I almost said grackle. <laughs> I think a, a Gorgon. Okay. I like it. Uh, do you learn by watching or doing? Uh, doing. Uh, do you correct people's grammar? No, in my head. Okay, in my head. <laughs> uh, weirdest thing you've seen used as a bookmark? Um, a kid once had a cookie in his book. Hmm. Uh, least favorite word? Uh, oh, unprecedented. <laughs> <laughs> it's now my least favorite word <laughs> something you wish you had done 
Oh, okay. This is going to be weird, but I wish we had gone back to, we were almost going to go back to Europe in 2019 and we decided not to, we were going to wait one more year. And and to round this out here at the minute mark, um, something you wish you had written. I wish I wrote Jasmine throne. Absolutely. Oh, that book is so good. (laughs) Was there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, no, not really. Just be on the lookout for, like we talked about Crimson Crown 2024. That one is Snow White from the villain's point of view. It is another queer retelling. So look out for all kinds of, oh, it is loosely, loosely, loosely based off the rise of Anne Boleyn. So it's kind of a Tudor inspired fantasy world with Anne Boleyn eventually, well, not Anne Boleyn as character, but my loosely based ambling character kind of becoming the evil queen that we know and she is a witch in a world that is hunting witches and is kind of infiltrating the palace to bring it down from the inside so lots of lots of stuff coming with that one i can't wait yeah i'm excited and i strongly recommend any everyone to take a a read or listen to malice and misrule ah thanks so much Thank you so much, Heather, for joining us on Unstacked. Miss Rule is available in the library collection for checkout. It can also be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Check out our website, heatherrwalter.com. H-E-A-T-H-E-R-R-W-A-L-T-E-R.com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.